Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Theologically Driven, a podcast for those who want to know God through His Word and have that knowledge drive their decisions. This podcast is brought to you by Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, a seminary devoted to exalting God by expounding His Word. You can learn more at dbts.edu. I'm Ben Edwards, Dean of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and in this episode we'll be discussing the fragmenting of fundamentalism. I guess this week is once again Dr. David Doran, President of DBTS and Senior Pastor of Inner City Baptist Church. Dr. Doran, thanks for joining us again today. Good to be here. Now we're calling this episode The Fragmenting of Fundamentalism because we're in some ways continuing our look at some of the history of how things developed, the the rise of the fundamentalist movement in the early 1900s, the rise of new evangelicalism and how fundamentalism responded to that in the middle of the 1900s. And now we're really getting into your lifetime. So not that long ago, um, not necessarily during your ministry, but starting in the sixties, really through the eighties, a lot of this driving. And you've actually uh, done some talks before about the fragmenting of fundamentalism. What, what does that mean when we say that fundamentalism fragmented? When did that happen? Right. So, uh, I think, um, I think the rise of new evangelicalism and it's, and I'll put it in air quotes, it's success as sort of capturing the, the, the imagination of both uh, American Christendom and also the people who talk about American Christendom, right? Because Billy Graham's ministry became, you know, he's America's pastor kind of a thing and everything be- gets oriented around that. So that sort of crystallized the issue of response and, and that uh, you know, that era, end of the 50s, into the 60s, was when basically fundamentalism started to fragment because of a difference in response to uh, new evangelicalism, but particularly the Graham issue. Um, there's, a, there's a PhD dissertation called Billy Graham and the End of Evangelical Unity, you know, partly what I'm saying is it's it's actually was the end of fundamentalist unity because the thing that fundamentalist and the early new evangelical shared was fundamentalist doctrine. So so it, because it was now a halfway house, so to speak, between fundamentalism theologically and modernism theologically, you could always have people going, well, they believe the right things. And, and they were right. I mean, up until the mid seventies, that was, you know, when the battle for the Bible came out, we mentioned earlier, um, Akingay says the fundamentalists were right in doctrine and we always wish to stand with them. I mean, he's sort of like the father of new evangelicalism, but, but there were big changes that, that diverted away from it. Well, as you had people getting stuck between the war now, right? So the, the, the aggressive new evangelical platform and the aggressive separatist platform of fundamentalist, it was the people caught between there that actually started to produce the, the, the friction. How do you consistently apply either of those two positions and and there was a, a vast middle that started to split as 
as it came. I mean, I've, I tell in our orientation, I mean, the sort of the history of our seminary is tied to this. I mean, the founder of the seminary was a graduate of Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, had his um, MDiv, THM, and THD from there. And I think in the early 70s was the alumnus of the year. We used to regularly have their faculty up to speak in the church here. Uh, but, and and they, they were... Uh, among a few seminaries that actually stood opposed to the new evangelicalism. Uh, Westminster wrote against it. Dallas wrote against it. Robert Leitner wrote a book called Neo-Evangelicalism, which was critical of new evangelicalism. And and Grace was opposed to it. But then in the late, uh, early 70s, all of a sudden they got on board with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association efforts. They had two big ones in the early 70s, and all of a sudden grace swung that way. And so the last vestiges of some of the most conservative uh, fundamentalist schools started to now basically go that route. And that's what I mean, the fragmenting. Uh, essentially, the tide shifted. And so mission agencies, uh, some associations, uh, educational institutions all began to start to chart different paths. So there was no unity of, of being for the fundamentals of the faith and being for the, what I would say is the militant defense of them, which might even lead to the point of separating. And so the issue of separation became the sort of the touchstone that started to get different streams of fundamentalist thinking. Would it be fair to say, as you look back at like the the conflict between fundamentalists and new evangelicalism, the issue was separation from false teachers, separation from those who deny essentials of the faith. Now we've kind of moved to the the other category we talked about. Sometimes it's called secondary separation, separation from those who are compromising the faith, and that was at the heart of this fracture. The fundamentalist uh, new new evangelicals new evangelicals were denying primary second uh, separation. Now you have people who, in many ways, are denying secondary separation or separation from disobedient believers, and, and we're starting to see some friction. That may not have been all of it, but is that a, a big factor in this? Yes, I think I think it's a major factor in it because the question. I mean, if I could put it on, this is why sometimes the caricature of third degree, fourth degree separation happens, right? I don't think it's a good caricature, but that's why it happens, right? Let's take, you know, I mean, these are these are historically inaccurate, but they're easy to identify, right? So, you know, you have an, a notorious liberal theologian, right, that, you know, is teaching at Union Seminary in New York City, right? Billy Graham welcomes him into the sponsorship of the Graham Crusade in the late 50s, effectively calling him brother, right? So this, the fundamentalist said you can't extend Christian recognition to those kinds of teachers, say like a Paul Tillich, right? Graham does it. The fundamentalist says that's compromising the gospel. So he separates from Graham. Right now, fast forward a few years, and like in many things, the conflict gets sort of fuzzy, right? And 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 so Graham showing up to Detroit in 1967 for a crusade, 
and the churches are starting to split from each other about whether they're going to support the Graham crusade, right? So like take the uh, Conservative Baptist Association of Michigan, which had pulled out of the Northern Baptist Convention, right? So separated from the liberalism in the Northern Baptist Convention. But now all of a sudden the conservative Baptist churches in Michigan are split over Graham. Right. And so, so in, in, inside the CBA, the debate was between the hardcore and the soft core, right? The hardcore fundamentalists were saying, we cannot have any partnership with those who are compromising the gospel like this. And the soft core were saying, we're, we're not going to separate over that. All right. So, so like the CBA uh, pulled out of the Northern Baptist Con Convention in 47, but by the early 60s is mired in a, in a conflict within itself. And essentially, I think most people would say the fundamentalists uh, actually only retained Michigan, Minnesota, and Colorado in, this, in the Conservative Baptist Association, the soft court basically took the rest of the association all right so you had you had splits that happened in there and so then you had coming out of that fundamentalist some getting harder and harder right so it's now if you're if you're affiliated in any way with anybody that hasn't separated from the guys who are softcore all right so now it started to become the you know the the real how far out do you extend this and how do you navigate this sort of new terrain in which you you have to you know you have to decide which way you're going and and you know i was of the school um in my upbringing under my pastor and and dr mccune was um that that it that's where you have to make decisions about which way their feet are pointing right are they coming toward a separated position or are they going away from it, you know, and then you make decisions based on that. Um, but then it started to become like, uh, I'm, I'm going to say this, but it, it it's, there's going to be people who be offended by me saying it. Right. But we went through an era where we had sort of like big names and, and, you know, people who were sort of calling the shots and saying, you know, here's the line and everybody needs to accept my line. And that 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 did not help. Right. Because a lot of these decisions have to be made um, in real time and in real situations. And so there, there was no when I use fragmenting in some senses, it's there was there was no longer a unified movement in part because there was not a unified uh, opponent, if I could put it that way, that we are standing against modernism, we are standing against new evangelicalism. Now you had sort of like a a more generic kind of evangelicalism on what I would say is the left side, and then on the right side became um, more and more mutations of fundamentalism. So that you you have. Lots of people calling themselves fundamentalists who won't have anything to do with each other. And, and not, not a crystal clear way how to, how to resolve that.
And in some ways, what you're you're pointing to is within the the fragmenting that's happening. There's there's an increasing confusion about what is a fundamentalist, uh, what actually does the Bible say about separation, and especially how do you apply that area of separation? And you know, there was a point in time in which what was a fundamentalist? He was it was different from a modernist. And there was that distinguishing reality. And then a fundamentalist was not a new evangelical fundamentalist, you know, affirmed the fundamentals of the faith and militancy for it and, and the separation. And now you have people beginning to say, well, I'm a fundamentalist because I hold to the fundamentals. And, and they're now redefining fundamentalism, ignoring some of that history that, that's come into play. And, and so there's a lot of confusion about actually what is a fundamentalist. And, and uh, within that confusion, then there's increasing fragmentation between people who all claim the same label, but hold different beliefs and different practices, especially in relationship to separation. Right. I mean, I, I, did, um, I did a series of, uh, uh, so some sermons, some lectures, some, you know, workshop stuff. And one that I used to focus on is it was titled reforming or reforming fundamentalism. And I tried to distinguish between efforts that were trying to help improve fundamentalism. That is, let's identify the places where we need to strengthen it and efforts that are actually were trying to create something different because they wanted to reform it into something other than what it historically was. And those tended to be ones that would go, well, we want to get back to the fundamentalism before all the controversy, right? And, and my concern at that point was to say, well, how is that actually different than new evangelicalism? I mean, that's the same thing they said. And, and so it seemed like every, um, now, now it's not because we're just at the point where we're, we're way into it. But I would say, um, so if you go 1920, right, was sort of the crystallization of fundamentalism. In the 1940s uh, was the formation of the new evangelicalism. But Marsden, you know, his history of Fuller is entitled Reforming Fundamentalism. Right. They weren't abandoning fundamentalism as a theological movement. They were basically wanting to radically change the way fundamentalism was perceived and operating. And, and I think at that point, they, um, they changed an essential nature of fundamentalism. And that is the unwillingness to accept liberalism. Right. The fundamentalists were trying to put it out or pull out from it. The new evangelicals wanted to keep the fundamental doctrine, but not the separation. So then that uh, what I would say is almost like a Trojan horse inside of new evangelicalism. So that then you have every 15 to 20 years inside of new evangelical or evangelicalism, you have some massive major doctrinal compromise and conflict happening, you know, right away it became inerrancy, but then that was followed up with all kinds of things, eternal punishment, the emerging church stuff. You, you still have 
and now you've got gender and sexual identity issues. I mean, because you, because they can't effectively put out error or are not committed to pull away from it, that's been a Trojan horse there, right? So the, the, the issue for fundamentalists is if you only go back before the new evangelicalism to define yourself, how are you going to prevent the same problem, right? You really can't historically, and I would say biblically, identify the separatist position without a stance on both of those issues. What do we do about apostasy and what do we do about the response to apostasy, right? But, and I have to concede that then, then we have to wrestle with Right, so how do we define the disobedient brother and 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 operate with some kind of consistency on that so that we're not just nitpicking people on every disagreement or arbitrarily picking the disagreements from which we'll separate. Right. So and that's that's been, I think, the uh, the blemish on separatist fundamentalism is not having a consistent stance and tending to say, if you have the right membership card, you can get away with a lot. If you don't have the right membership card, then, you know, you're, you're one of those. And, and I think that's a dangerous outcome of the fights that started happening in the seventies, because the nature of those fights were pretty ugly and really in the sixties. It started to become, uh, you know, how do you respond to the people who haven't broken from? So you had one wing of that among the Southern Baptists. So you had Southern Baptists um, who weren't pulling out of the convention, other ones pulling out of the convention. Uh, you know, the CBA had their fight that way. Uh, in the 80s, it turned into a battle in the GRBC. Uh, the IFCA actually had had a whole string of fights in in the '60s and '70s and '80s, so so it was um, it, it, the answers were not um, consistently being given, and so it started to be uh, a little bit of a wild west situation. So that effectively, there's not I don't think. Some good people disagree with me on it, but there is no, I would say there is no fundamentalist movement. And, um, and that's not, that was true against modernism. And I think it was true in the early days against new evangelicalism. There was a unified movement articulating the biblical position both positively, here's what we should be for, and uh, negatively, here's what we should be against, for the purpose of having fundamentalist uh, churches and mission agencies and educational institutions. But when you define a movement as an organized effort towards some goal, I don't think I don't think um, you can say there's a fundamentalist movement at this point. There are pockets of fundamentalists, but there's no unified, organized effort in the service of some particular mission or objective.
Uh, you mentioned, you know, a, a movement is often something that is for something and against something else. And, and as the fundamentalist movement fractured and fragmented and, and essentially kind of was no longer a fundamentalist movement, you had people raising their own issues, raising their own opponents and creating, trying to create a movement, um, often, you know, emphasizing something that historically was not a fundamental of the faith and, and beginning to say, this is the, uh, the true, all true Christians are going to hold to this. Anyone who denies this is a compromiser and begin to demonize uh, other people. And that contributes to the further fragmenting of fundamentalism. As you look at that kind of tendency, what are some ways that, that we can guard ourselves uh, uh, so that we are making sure when we are promoting something and saying, this is worth fighting for, and this is someone who is opposed to it, that it's a true thing worth fighting for, and someone who's actually truly should be an enemy of the faith instead of creating false movements? Right. Well, I think, I think if you're going to, um, I mean, I think you have to be clear on what constitutes essential doctrines, which cannot be denied, you know, so, um, there needs to be either a, what I would say as a, uh, explicit or implicit denial of those, um, and, and so that's, that's a hard line. Right. Then then when it comes to believers and their relationship to that, right, then if they are if they are overlooking the commands of God to separate from that, to, you know, to uh, confront that contend for the faith, then then that's that's a that's a serious problem. Right. So any kind of ecumenical movement that that is effectively obscuring the clarity of what it means to be a Christian. Right. And, um, you know, right now it seems like we're, you know, we're in a little bit of a lull, but you know, some of the ones we, you know, you can, you can go, um, obviously ecumenical evangelism was that, that still is going on. Right. So, so it may not be like the hot radar thing, but it, you know, there's, it's still happening with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. You know, there are evangelistic efforts which bring together people who don't hold to the same gospel. Right. There, there have been movements like evangelicals and Catholics together. Uh, I think the Manhattan Declaration from, 10, you know, 13 years ago or so was an example of that. You had, you had believers of an evangelical faith signing on with people from uh, Catholic and Orthodox belief systems, all putting themselves under the banner of Christian. And, and so here's the tension in that kind of a scenario. You had, uh, theologically orthodox people who signed on right saying they weren't doing it for ecumenical things you had um, theologically orthodox people saying they were doing it for ecumenical things and then you had theologically orthodox people speaking out against it 
in all in all three of those, right? So, so then the question becomes: So, how do you respond to those people? All right, and I would think a consistent response would be to uh, challenge it at the bare minimum, right? So, uh, and I and I, um, so here's I guess part I should throw this in. Right, I think about this as a pastor, right? So my primary responsibility is shepherding in a context of a congregation, right? So, so what I need to do is protect our flock from the inroads of false teaching and disobedience regarding how to respond to that false teaching, right? So, um, you know, some guy 10 states away from me that the people in our congregation have no idea who he is. It, it's really not that germane to me as a shepherd, right? So, so the reality of it is I, I need to be focused on the threats on our congregation, right? And another guy in another place who may be the pastor who's promoting this thing is just down the street from him. He's gonna he's gonna have a, a much more aggressive need to protect his flock in that regard, right? So what I would say is we've got to give room for those different kinds of responses without immediately pulling a guy's you know card. Hey, you're no longer a fundamentalist because you didn't sign our statement, or you haven't immediately acted on the same information that that this other brother did, right? And that's that's the tension. So, you know, we've talked before and I've, I've written about, I think the reality is we need more of a compass now than we do a map. What are the principles that would guide our decision-making and how do we make that decision in the time and place where we are? And then um, without getting weak, exercise some level of charity to um, to let other shepherds process their decisions in the way that are most effective for their congregation, as long as they're trying to put biblical principles. Right? They can't go, well, hey, it works better for our congregation to be a part of this apostate denomination, right? I don't, I don't think that that can be justified. Or, well, you know. It, it would cause disunity in our congregation if we don't participate in this ecumenical endeavor, right? At that point, they're, they're effectively showing that they don't believe the same that you do and are actually working in an opposite direction. And so to me, that would mean that we should withhold fellowship in some kind of, you know, when it comes to cooperative works, we're not we're not walking the same pathway, and at some point there's going to be a conflict. And one of the I think takeaways I have looking back at, at some of what occurred in this fragmenting of fundamentalism is it is important to make sure that you agree on the principles. That that one of the issues was you even had people who were saying they were fundamentalists but were uh, not willing to to say that the Bible actually teaches there is a necessary separation from professing Christians and even genuine Christians who are in sin. And so you, you've got to make sure you agree on that principle. But then when it comes to the application, it, it can often be more complex and there's more things involved in it. 
such that uh, because someone happens to apply it a little differently than us doesn't mean that they don't believe it. Doesn't mean they don't follow it. And that's where we need to allow a little bit more charity rather than immediately jumping to condemnations and, and treating them as enemies when they actually do agree with us in the principle and they're trying to live it out, maybe not in exactly the same way. Right. Yeah. And I, th I think, I think the, if I could draw an analogy, because I, I do think ecclesiastical separation is the extension of church discipline kinds of things, right? So uh, inside, inside the church, you practice church discipline. The church's relationship to other churches is an extension of our discipline with regard to how well we can extend fellowship or might have to withdraw if we think that you have abandoned the faith or you're being disobedient to it, right? So uh, Matthew 18 uses this phrase, listens, 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 right? And one of the challenges you run in in doing discipline in the church is, so how do you know when the person is is not listening any longer, right? What fruit demonstrates that they actually aren't repentant of this sin and, and they're, they're maybe nodding their head. They might be letting you talk to them, but they, they are not going to act on the truth. I mean, that's the hard judgment call for, for, for pastors as they lead their congregations in church discipline to say, Listen, we have warned and we've exhorted, we've encouraged, but this person is not obeying the scriptures on this point. And so unless they take this step of obedience, we're going to need to remove them from, from the church. I mean, that's that's hard to do. And it's hard to tell their it's hard to make a dogmat, well, it should only be for three weeks, or it should be, you know, three times they mess up or whatever. I mean, you, you can't do that. You've got to go case by case. You've got to patiently work because you're going for restoration. Right. And I think the same thing should be true when we're concerned about, say, the drift in another assembly or the drift in a church association or the drift in an educational institution or the drift in a mission board right we we should speak the truth call you know call to obedience hey how are you tolerating this heterodoxy why are you cooperating in this ecumenical activity listen for the explanation if if the explanation doesn't honor scripture I think call to repentance. Hey, you, you, that, that's not faith. That's not being faithful. And, but not with a, like we're, we're just after you to separate from you. It's we're actually, we would like to win you to the truth, right? Can't you see the consequence of doing this? This is a compromise of the gospel to partner in that way. And, and so, if they've got an ear to listen and they seem to be making steps to try and correct the problem, but it takes time and they're trying to do it patiently rather than blow something up, then I think we should exercise some level of patience. But also recognize at some point, if there's not a change, then then we have to we have to act consistently with our convictions, right? And and no longer 
uh, no longer go along with it. I just think it's, I think it's so easy to, um, well, I think the bad fruit of some of the ways in which this issue was handled in the, in the late sixties, seventies and eighties was that you had, you had people draw a line and say, if you're going to be a fundamentalist, you have to get on our side of the line and you have to do it right now. And, uh, and, and that, that just didn't work. Right. Uh, I, I mean, our church pulled out of a church association in the mid eighties and four years later, I, I saw a bunch of guys, you know, basically calling everybody to pull out over compromise and, and effectively labeling anybody that wouldn't do it as, as a compromiser. And I remember laughing, thinking like we pulled out four years ago. Have you guys been compromisers for four years? It was like we saw something, my predecessor saw something, was concerned about it, voiced his concerns, did not feel like there was an answer that was adequately given. So so our church withdrew, right? But that was the decision our church made. And, and uh, but there are guys out there at times, I mean, it's our tendency, right, that our position is the one true right position. Anyone that doesn't take our position is thereby a compromiser. And, and I think that, that is where the, 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 because that did happen. That's the problem that came in. I think the, the, you know, the unfortunate thing is, is that people could have, have, uh, effectively caricaturized, uh, caricatured fundamentalist as being not driven by any conviction, but just, you know, just being critical. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not an accurate, historically accurate position. It may reflect some fundamentalist personalities, but it also, you know, I remember sitting at, at lunch during my doctoral program and a guy uh, said, where'd you go to school? And I told him, he goes, how long did it take you to get over that? I mean, so here he's attacking in a very uncharitable way, the fundamentalists. And I remember looking right at him and saying, well, I'm not sure what you mean. I may not have yet. And it sort of threw him off, but it's like, I've, I've seen, I've seen fundamentalists be treated in a very ungodly way by supposedly loving evangelicals. I mean, the depravity problem affects all of our groups. So, so let's peel away that and go, what, where does the Bible land on this? And then, then try to live it out consistently and, and call out ungodly behavior wherever it is, if we have to call it out. If that's in our house, call it out, right? Because we need, I, I don't think we'll actually have unity between Bible-believing churches who are committed to the preservation of the faith unless we can speak honestly with each other. And perhaps one of the blessings of the, the idea that the movement kind of ceased to exist in some ways is loyalty is, can sometimes get sidejacked to a movement or to institutions instead of saying, so what's, the, what's biblical? What needs to happen? What do we need to do? And then just looking around, who else is on board? Right. And let's see if we can work together in that right. way. Do we agree with one another? Yeah. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Dorn, again for joining us. And thank you for listening to this episode of Theologically Driven. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe so you won't miss out on upcoming episodes. You can find out more about our podcast or Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary at dbts.edu. We look forward to our next time together. Until then, keep seeking the Lord.